Amen. Yes, it is. Excited to preach this morning. Title this morning is When Grace Restrains. Uh, before we get into it, uh, Moscosos are in um, Brandon, Florida this morning. Christian is preaching at Gulf Coast Brandon. So if you guys remember when Loon preached here, that is his where he has pastored for a number of years um, and is now headed. In two weeks, he will he and his wife will transition to Vietnam, where he will teach uh, men how to rightly handle Scripture to preach. Uh, so church planters and church pastors there in Vietnam. If you don't know uh, Loon's story, he was uh, his family were refugees from Vietnam when he was a child, fled for their life, fled literally, ran for their lives, and. Uh, they were Buddhists. The Lord saved his family, um, and he is just a dear friend pastoring. And so he is returning home to teach men to handle God's word and for, yeah, we pray for just gospel advancement in Vietnam. But that's where Christian is this morning because that church is in search of a pastor. No, they are not looking at Christian um, for that, we have let them know they're, they're a Grace Partnership Church, um, and uh, we let them know that we were able to send one of us will go each month, um, and so that's why he's there. That's starting this month, and I believe I'll be with them next month. But we're just trying to serve and care for them um, as they're in between, as they are doing interviews, looking at a couple couple men, um, possible men, to come and fill, fill that role there at Gulf Coast Brandon. So if you would, be praying for them, all right? So the title of our sermon this morning um, comes from what Rick just read, is the Lord has restrained you. That, that verse is really key to the sermon. In chapter 24, if you remember from last week, chapter 24, David shows great restraint right? He's in the cave. Saul comes into the cave. All that happens, right? And uh, the, the David's mighty men are egging him on. The Lord has delivered Saul into your, your, into your hand. End this now, right? And take his life. And uh, David shows great restraint. I'm going to call that restraining grace. And uh, he doesn't end it there or um, now, and uh, Saul lived on, and David basically communicates at the end there of chapter 24, he's going to leave it to the Lord. The Lord be the judge between you and me, and it's really pretty amazing how chapter 24 ends. Well, then you turn the page, if you will, and we come to chapter 25, which shows us the fumbling of of grace by David. So in one chapter, you see he's got this great restraining grace being offered to Saul. And in the next chapter, we'll see he completely fumbles that same grace. And then we're going to return this morning uh, to chapter 26, which is the episode, episode where David is, uh, well, he, he, he has an opportunity to take Saul's life again. 
And so he returns to this restraining grace. He doesn't take Saul's life again. So you've got this kind of this grace sandwich, if you will, is what I'm trying to paint for us. Chapter 24, David shows great restraint, great grace towards the king. He does not kill him. Would have been easy to do so. Everybody's cheering him on. We might even be going, yeah, I get it. Go ahead. Um, he restrains. He, he extends grace. Chapter 25, we're going to hear about here in a moment. Uh, he fumbles that grace. Pretty bad. Chapter 26, there's your sandwich. He's going to offer grace again and extends mercy towards King Saul again. We'll probably not spend much time, if any at all, in chapter 26. It's very similar to chapter 24. And so for the sake of time, we're going to spend the bulk share of our time in chapter 25. So... This week, I was helping a little bit um, to do some of the brick and mortar over here in the room that you're going to see in a couple weeks finished and completed. Uh, the big kudos go to Kim and Richard and Emily Scott. They, three of them, just spent an enormous amount of hours doing this. And then... It came time to grout it, and the, the grouting process, um, well, Kim and Richard are here. They would tell you it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster, and it, it just didn't go well. Uh, Kim came home and just said, you need to pray. We need to pray that something's got to give here. Um, and the next day, actually, through their research, let's try this different mortar, different product, and it went marvelously, and that wall is finished. But when I came, I think it was Wednesday night, when I was there to help, as Richard was kind of sharing with me the disaster that the previous days were, um, he shared with me this quote. He says, there are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then, it is difficult. Then, it is done. And so we were kind of like making comment, like that was going on in that room. <laughs> like this, this, we were somewhere in the impossible stage one day, and then it became difficult, and now, now it's done. But even better than that, that really describes well this section of Samuel. If you, if you didn't know the end of the story, you would say, David, king, it's not possible. It's almost unfortunate that we know the end of the story because we just assume he's going to be king. But no, if you're David and you're living out these days, it, that, that's really difficult to get your head wrapped around. There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it's impossible. He's somewhere between the first it's impossible and then it's difficult stage. But it will become done. Let's pause. Let's pray. Father, we lift up Christian as he now preaches at Gulf Coast Brandon. And we pray for that church as they are in search of a pastor. Please bless that church. Please give them the right man, the right family to come and participate and join in that community and to lead there. And Father, so we pray for him as he preaches, and we pray for us this morning as we preach, and we pray for our two churches. And we just ask, Lord, would you build your church this morning through the preaching of your word? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so point number one is fumbling grace. In starting here this morning, let's remember who David is and let's remember all that David's done to earn the grace of God. David has done nothing to earn the grace of God, right? David has done nothing. To what kingly line does David owe his future throne? Why was he chosen by God? And while we're at it, let's ask ourselves, why were we chosen by God? We ask the same questions. Why are you and I, why are we sons and daughters of the living God? Why has he made you heirs And why are you chosen by God before, Ephesians tells us, before the foundations of the world? Why David? And why you? And why me? What commends David? And what commends you? Is it because you're moral? Is it because you've kind of, you're a good person and you feel like that commends you to God? Or, or is it because that in some way you feel like, well, the Lord needs me. I've got some gifts that I can offer God and his church and the Lord needs me. The answer is a simple and profound. It's a lifetime. It's an eternity of worship. The answer is simply grace. You haven't done anything to earn the grace of God. The moment we earn the grace of God, it's no longer grace. It's just something owed to us. You are chosen by God because of the grace of God. And David was chosen by God to be the king in Israel because of grace. Not because David was great. Actually, the opposite is true. He's the ruddy boy. He's the one who shouldn't be picked. Don't pick him. He doesn't even get to come to the anointing party with his brothers and his dad, Jesse. And so chapter 25 begins with this episode of David, and we're gonna see, we'll read here in a moment, of his just fumbling of grace. And let's be clear as we read that, that we recognize the grand difference between you and I and the Lord, or David and the Lord, in that God never fumbles grace towards you. It's never happened. It never will. The Lord will never, oh, I forgot. Oh, I missed it. Oh, no. Never fumbles grace. We do. Now, I love Scripture's honesty, and the goal of Scripture is not that we're shown some amazing man or amazing woman. Uh, Such an amazing guy, such an amazing gal that, again, this is why the Lord chose them. No, that's not the point of Scripture. We come to this this man, David, and we know him as he was a man after God's heart. But the honesty of scripture shows us that the man who's after God's own heart is also the man who's lied, who's the man today. He's gonna fumble grace pretty, pretty drastically. We, we know what's further coming in his adultery. That guy. We could say in chapter 24, what a guy. And then we can come to chapter 25 and go, what happened to him? Where'd he go? Where did that guy go? I thought, I thought we were reading about David. We are. What'd you do with David? Where did he go? Where's the man after God's own heart in chapter 25? Where's the guy who offered the king mercy? Chapter 24. Where's that guy in chapter 25? 
Did the king deserve mercy in chapter 24? And the answer is no, he didn't deserve that mercy. We're probably there with his ragtag men cheering him on in the cave. Here's your chance, David, do it, take him. God has given him to you is what they were telling him. But he does the godly thing. He trusts in the Lord and he says, I leave it to the Lord. God, you be judge between the two of us. Well, so again, I'm saying we turn the page and we could be asking, where did the grace go from chapter 24? Let's begin. Verse 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now, we're just going to pause there for a second because that's a bit of a setup. But hey, that was brief. And that's all it's going to say about the death of Samuel. Like, we got chapters of buildup to Samuel, right? We, we knew Samuel before Samuel ever was, right? We, we know Hannah is praying for this child, right? And we know Eli the priest is accusing her of being drunk. And we, we know all of that. We've preached through those chapters of 1 Samuel. And the, the, the vital role that Samuel played in Israel now, all these chapters, now we come to his death and it just says Samuel died. All Israel assembled, mourned for him, buried him in his house, and it's going to go on from there. And I think that's to be noted in that Israel is spiraling downward. But it's also to be noted because that's you and me too. You know, I've kind of joked before that, hey, someday I'll be dead and gone and, you know, if you want to have a picture of me hanging on the, on the hollowed walls of the church, put it in the closet. Put it in the closet. This is a not about man. This is about a savior, a better king, Jesus Christ. And so I just kind of, kind of look at verse 1 and go, that's a little bit odd. And I also go, and that's good too. Verse number 2. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and, and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man, I love that contrast, discerning, beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so we're getting these introductions to who's, who's this going to be about. And we've got, well, the guy, he's verse 2, very rich. He's got lots of sheep. It's to tell us he's kind of kingly. And he's got all these resources, kind of like a king would have. We're going to find that Nabal is a bit of a pretender of a king. Verse 3, we find out that Nabal is harsh and badly behaved, and he's got a beautiful and discerning wife, Abigail. The name Nabal in the original language actually means fool, and she'll use that reference later on. Uh, it means fool. It probably, uh, most think, it's not as if, you know, mom and dad had a baby and said, what are you going to Fool. Let's call him fool. Now, it's, it's probably just his foolish activity, and he's probably earned the name along the way. And so he is Nabal, and he is harsh and badly behaved. He's foolish, and his, his bride is beautiful and discerning. This guy has married out of his league, right? And all of the men in the room who are married can say, amen, we have done the same. 
badly behaved, foolish, Nabal, beautiful and discerning. God, thank you for our wives. All right, we can go home. Now, let's pick up verse number four. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace be to all that you have. Peace, peace, peace. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Okay, and so we've got this request and what we need to know, culturally speaking, this is a very reasonable request. Nothing being asked here is is exaggerated or extravagant. It's sheep shearing season, which means this is a festive season. This is a time literally of sharing. It's a celebration. And we've been told the owner is wealthy. He's got means. He's got resources. David and his men have been there and they've been a a, a means of protection to Nabal's clan, his family and, and, and his sheep. And so nothing's gone missing is what David is saying here. Um, while we've been there, um, it would be a thing. 600 men, uh, they could easily take. Um, but no, they've protected. They've made sure that his flocks are well. And actually his servants, naval servants, are going to reference more about that later in the chapter. And so that's what's going on. It's a reasonable request. And it was a culture of reciprocity. And so it would be normal that Um, given those circumstances, given it's sheep shearing season, it's a festival, it's a giving time, it's hospitality to a stranger, reciprocity, all these different things are playing in. Just to say to you, David's request is extremely reasonable. It's It's so reasonable that David probably assumed when he sent his guys to say to Nabal, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you. Hey, can you help us out? His assumption probably was, it's going to be no problem. Like that would be normal. Well, the reasonable request is met with a very selfish response. Verse number nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where. Now, here's the thing. When he says, who is David? Um, It's rhetorical. He knows who David is. Everybody knew who David was. He he says, who is the son of Jesse? Which is kind of interesting. It kind of exposes the rhetorical question in itself. He knows David. David is the giant killer. David is the one who took a stone from his sling and killed the giant. He he knows who David is. All of Israel knew who David was. David was the one that the women sang over that Saul kills a thousand, but David kills ten thousand. They, he knew of David. 
And his next statement actually tells us that he knows. There are many slaves these days who are breaking away from their masters. That's, that's a dig. That's, ouch, ouch. Like, um, is, that, is that what you think of me? I'm just, I'm just running, um, you know, from serving my king. But the selfishness is further exposed there in verse 11 where he says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I don't know um, where they come from. And so it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Verse number 12, so David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David's response. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man, of, every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. I kind of find that a little amusing. <laughs> I wonder, am I a baggage guy? <laughs> just, I'm like strapping on my sword and David, no, nah, no. Nah, nah, we got this. Uh, maybe you can just stay with the bags. And there can be a sense of like where we read this and we go, okay, I get it, but whoa, this is, this is a bit of an over-response, isn't it? This looks nothing like chapter 24, right? There, no, this, this looks more Saul-like than David-like, doesn't it? I mean, that's exactly what we would expect if we were reading this episode and it's put Saul's name in the text, we would go, well, yeah, of course, duh. But we come here and we need to go, what has happened here? And so again, I want to encourage us. We don't want to moralize people in Scripture. Let them be who they are as Scripture brings them to us. And I appreciate that. And I, and I hope that you appreciate the humanity of Scripture being exposed to us. They're not perfect individuals. The man after God's own heart, what happened to him in chapter 25? Where has the chapter 24 David gone? Here's the thing. I'm amazed at how quickly I go from chapter 24 to chapter 25. You know what I'm saying? So I'm amazed. I can be driving down the road. I can literally be in prayer, you know, how great is our God moment, like singing to the Lord, praying to God, 10,000 reasons my soul can find, right? And just forever, Lord, I will worship you. And then someone doesn't look and they turn into the road and they almost hit me. And where did chapter 24 go, right? Like the 24 chapter of grace, recipient of grace, praise be to God, somewhere in chapter 25 of my life, at that moment, where's it gone? You've been there. I know because you laughed. We've all been there. A moment of godliness. I've quoted it before to you. I love John Piper's quote. Sometimes I feel like when I wake up in the morning, the devil's sitting on my face. It's that. Wait, I, I like to say, I went to bed saved, and I don't know what happened last night. I woke up, 
and I know that I remain saved. But what happened between then and then? And so I love the humanity that is shown to us because I find it helpful. Well, Abigail is coming to the rescue in the midst of David fumbling grace. Instead of fumbling grace, we're going we're gonna to exact on Nabal and all of his family and all the men. We're going to take them out. Sounds like Saul back in Nob, but it's not. It's David, and he's fumbling grace, and Abigail's going to come to the rescue. Let's read verse number 14. Restraining grace. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. This is the servants saying, they, Those guys, those 600 guys, they took care of us. They were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as, they, as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. So they were a source of protection to naval servants. All the while, while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man. Now, this is, this is the servants talking to Nabal's wife. He's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail, she didn't say, stop it, guys. She's, she makes haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins. I assume that's a lot of raisins. And 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Like there's marital issues, right? Like maybe they need to come to the marriage retreat this fall. I think that's what this marriage needs. Didn't tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. Ever been there? God do so to the enemies of David and more also. Let's exact revenge. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Remind you anyone? Remind you of Saul. That's who it reminds you of. It's escalating fast. David looks just like Saul at Nob. Why about all the males that belong to Nabal? Men, hear me. Don't be a Nabal. <laughs> Don't be a Nabal. Have you ever been a Nabal? I have. And thank God if he has given you an Abigail. And invite that couple to the marriage retreat. Listen to this amazing appeal by Abigail. It is wise, it is bold, and it is godly. It is wow amazing. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. I'm not suggesting, ladies, that you need to do this. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, 
my Lord, be the guilt. I'll take it. I'll take the guilt. Exact revenge on me is what she's saying. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Hear the words. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. She now joins with the servants. I agree, he's a worthless fellow. Don't let the, my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Right? His name is fool. He's a fool. That's what she's saying. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives. It's just a beautiful wording. My Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, chapter 24, and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. That. Go, Abigail. That's amazing. She just nailed the seminary theology exam. She gets it right in every way. She shows respect to David my Lord, but she also recognizes in doing so, but you're not the Lord. My Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He is respected, but she's wise. Please, she says, let your servants speak. Let, let not. Don't do this because he's Nabal. Don't do this because he's a fool is what she's saying, folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Next she says, the Lord lives. Who's the king in Israel? What have we been pounding week after week after week? There's three kings in Israel. There's the current king, King Saul. He's the king, right? And then there's the future king. There's King David. There's a third king in Israel. That's King Jesus. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, God, the sovereign one. He's the one who rules and reigns in Israel. And Abigail, she gets that. She gets that right here. My Lord, the Lord, the Lord lives in Israel as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you. The Lord. Uh, we could say it like this. Chapter 24, the grace that he extended to Saul was because of the grace that comes from the Lord to David. The Lord lives. You know, David has almost been killed by Saul at various times and Saul easily could have been killed by David. And that's why I love that she says, the Lord lives. One king has almost died. A future king, at this point, you would say, is likely to die. But the Lord lives. The king lives in Israel. That's what's going on there. That's what she is saying. That king's life has never been threatened. 
And when it will be threatened in the future, he lays it down. He tells us, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. It's on my terms. And then three days later, he will rise from the grave. He's the king. The king lives. Next, she shows us that she understands that it's the Lord who has restrained you. Verse 26. And verse 26 is really the key. When it says the Lord has restrained you, that's past tense. He has restrained you. Chapter 24. He has restrained you. And what she's saying is, because the Lord has restrained you, so now restrain yourself. Let's pick it up, verse number 27. And now let this present, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She's being prophetic here. We could turn. We won't do that. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. It's just a beautiful picture. Go, Abigail. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Probably not a random reference to the individual who slung out a rock out of his sling. She knew that. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, wow, go Abigail, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord, small l, looking, working salvation himself. And when the Lord, capital L, has dealt with my Lord, small l, then remember your servant. Abigail's Speech, if you will, is just loaded, God-centered speech. It's beautiful. In this portion of our text, she speaks of the Lord five times. Previous portion, two other times. Seven times total, she just says over and over again, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And what she's saying here is, why not leave it to the Lord? Why not chapter 24? the Lord be judged between the two of us. Why not leave it to the Lord? She's reminding him of the previous episode. What is she saying? She's saying, oh, future king, oh, future king, why not put it in the hands of the king? It's a beautiful play on words that's going on here. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Let's continue to read. Listen how David now responds to her God-centered appeal. Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. I, so many things Help me to know where to comment, where to keep going. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Who's responsible for her being there? Well, Abigail, she decided to go, uh, but there's a king in Israel, the sovereign king, who sent you this day to meet me. 
It's beautiful. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me? Truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your your petition. He says, blessed be the Lord, the Lord who sent you this day to meet me. Why? Because he's recognizing God is king in Israel. Blessed be you who has kept me this day from doing this and from doing that. Who is, who's doing the restraining here? It's the Lord. Or is it Abigail? Well, the answer is yes. It's the Lord through Abigail. But Abigail's not the sovereign king. God is the sovereign king of Israel. God is restraining David through this woman of God, Abigail. And it's beautiful. Verse 36, and Abigail came to Nabal. Oh boy. <laughs> hey, hun. <laughs> and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and he has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Let the Lord avenge. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail um, to take her as his wife. We'll address that in a moment. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Gallim. Oh, boy, so what a mess. A um, couple quick thoughts here. Uh, Nabal has been pretending to be a king, right? He's not a king. He's pretending like he's kingly, but he's a fool, and he dies. David is to be the future king, but he's been pretending to be the fool. Um, God is the king. Well, we see David taking multiple wives here. And just to address that really quickly, um, we need to simply state that that never was the plan of God. Like sometimes folks read it and go, okay, well, that must mean this. Um, Marriage is not for polygamy. Actually, whenever scripture presents that, it's always done in such a way as to say, and there was confusion and chaos and a mess and problems followed. Uh, And it is interesting how it says David took her. He took her. And David has taken others. And it's also interesting what's going on. The irony that uh, Saul 
takes Michael, his daughter, and takes her from him and gives her to another. Um, David, David, David's got an issue with taking. And we will see that issue come to bear when he takes Bathsheba. So never a good thing. It's always conflict, always jealousy, always a mess in Scripture. All right, where do we go from here? Well, let's uh, just say in chapter 26, restraining grace continues to be restored. Uh, Saul is... David and Abishai sneak into Saul's camp. Everybody's asleep. It says the Lord put um, Saul to deep sleep. His sword is by his head, sticking in the ground. Abishai's like, come on, <laughs> let me do it. If you're not, let me do it. Let me take, and, and the reader, honestly, at all that Saul has put him through, we might just be cheering him on as well. David restrains himself. He restrains Abishai. He spares the king's life, and we have a very similar episode that we preached last week. So let's jump to number four. Bringing and responding to grace. I just address separately. I want to address the ladies and the men. Ladies, let this text embolden you to be the woman of God that you are. What a woman she is. She knows her theology. It's beautiful. Um, theology matters, ladies. It's not just a guy thing. Grateful to the ladies who are digging into your Bible and saying, I want to know God and I want to know his word. Go, ladies. Go. Dig into God's word. Theology matters. Truth to God's word matters. What an amazing role this woman of God played in the community of God. If I could say, and this, woof, boy, this gets you in trouble. Unfortunately, this is being recorded. And, but if I could say, ladies, go to your Lord. No, your husband is not your Lord who lords over you. But understand I think, I think you understand what I'm saying. Go to your Lord and, and appeal. Based on God's truth, based on who God is, not based on personal preference. I'm not talking about going to your husband with personal preferences, with this or that, or petty matters. Um, these things or that things. But make your appeal where there is a blatant forgetfulness in your navel. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um of the things of God. And, and ladies, do that, but don't use this text to manipulate because there's a fine line there where I'm just going to use the word to manipulate to get what I want. There is, a, there is a negligence here on David's part that is so obvious and clear and it's so beautiful to see a godly woman address that in Scripture. Men, has God given you an Abigail, a wise godly woman. Be humble and hear her appeal. Recognize that we're all Nabal, and actually I mean that to all of us. We are all Nabal at times, and we need our wife. Ladies, you need your husband. The single women seek to grow and learn from other women in becoming this woman who knows her theology, 
and knows her Bible. And single men, seek to grow in humility and see you, you need this kind of woman who's this bold. Next, none of us works outside of conviction on both the part of Abigail and David regarding who God is. So if Abigail and David don't have a conviction about who God is, this doesn't work. Chapter 25 doesn't work. And so grow in your knowledge of who God is. God is sovereign. He rules and reigns. He's at work in the minutia and the big moments of your life. He's at work in you. He is the Lord. He is the King. He has brought into all of our lives restraining grace to us. Praise be to God. Praise God for the times in our lives where he has restrained you from your foolishness. You see, Nabal's the fool, but who's, who's, so is David. David's being foolish. Praise God for the restraining grace that has kept you and I from foolish things throughout our lives. Number five, trust the Lord. He's not, he has he not, sorry, has he not shown himself to be trustworthy? He is trustworthy. Worship team, you can join me. Put not only your faith in him for your salvation, right? Yes, by all means, put your faith in Christ for your salvation, but don't stop there. Yes, put your faith in Christ for your eternity, but don't stop there. Put your faith in Christ for tomorrow. For the challenges that you might face tomorrow, for the circumstances that are difficult, for the suffering that's hard, put your whole weight on Christ. He can handle it. Trust in him. Next, recipients of grace offer grace. We have received grace. We ought to be driven by that grace to then be um, offering grace to others. What grace Abigail had when she came and asked David to relent of his sinful bend to avenge. You see, the gospel of grace ought to humble us. It ought to give us pause. It ought to help us not only engage with each other, but also to engage with this world. We have been saved. We have gone from death to life. We have gone from darkness to light. If it were not for grace, you and I would be living in darkness right now. But for the grace of God, we know him, we serve him, we worship him. Though I am deeply sinful, I am nonetheless infinitely loved by God. That's his grace. So it ought to help us slow down when engaging this world. May it help humble me when I speak. May our words be seasoned with salt. May it offer light instead of self-righteous darkness. What do we do with this? Well, we worship. Awe of God that you are a recipient. If you are a faithful, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are a recipient of his grace. And the response to that grace, praise be to the king. He saved you, not because of your morality, but because of his goodness and his kindness poured out into your life. He chose you. He calls you by name. 
That's grace. We have received grace abundantly here. And so let's stand together and let's lift our voices together in response to such said grace. To him be the praise.
So I hope you go home singing that, <laughs> not just mouthing words, but with great conviction. Um, he's the king. He's not just the king in Israel.